I, I tell you, folks, and, and if I can just say this, it really, I mean, that song we just say, when death was arrested and my life began, that really is a picture, that song of baptism, right? When death was arrested, died to sin, raised again to newness of life, and my life began. Wow. That's, and, and, and as part of the Great Commission, for each and every one of us, whew, I, I hope that you get so excited about, man, I would do that every week. I just would, absolutely, every week. And, and we'd have, I'm sure we'd have other people who had an in, impact in the lives of people getting saved and then getting baptized, and they'd be up there baptized. It's, wow, but it's, it's the significance of that. It's part of the commission that God has given to us. Oh, man, please pray much for a God-stirring of this place, of these people, of us to be making disciples and seeing them baptized and taught to obey. Well, it's great to be here. It's great to have you here. And if you're a guest this morning, let me add my uh, warm welcome to, uh, to you, to what Scott already said, uh, and we're glad that you are here. I'm grateful to have you all here, not just those of you that are guests. Boy, yesterday was a fantastic day. Uh, we were downtown Clark Summit, the fall festival, that we've been able to participate in for the last number of years right down there in the middle of town. And uh, it was a beautiful, beautiful day. Uh, once the sun came around the corner, it got warm. And uh, it was just fantastic. We had uh, hay rides and bouncy house and, and we're giving out cookies and, and hot dogs and cold or hot cider. And we just had a great time. For those of you who provided food, man, thank you. I, I, wow, I mean, we had a ton. Did anybody see Scott's video on Facebook? Is that on Facebook, Scott? Huh, anybody see that? Raise your hand, come on, we want to know. All right, there's, we're working on that social uh, media thing, so if you didn't see it, you got, is it still there, Scott? You could put it there, yeah, see, he doesn't really want to. It was hilarious, but... It was just with all the stuff that, all the food that you folks provided, and uh, it, it was great. So thank you very much for everybody. And for those of you that manned the booth, manned the table, manned the games down in the, in the park on, on the other end of town, and, and were there giving out tickets for the bouncy house and the hayride and everything else, thank you to all of you who participated, who gave your time to be there. It really was a great day, and I have to give a shout out. To Scott and Michelle and Paul for all the planning that they did ahead of time. Um, I mean, really, it's a lot of work to get that all organized, to work with the Abington Business and Professional Committee that, that we do. And um, uh, thank you so much, Paul, Michelle, Scott, for all the work. And uh, um, it was a, a, a full day, but it was a great day. So anyway... It, what, a, what a time. And, and hey, right here after the service, 10.15, right, Scott? Right here in the auditorium. 
you're going to hear about uh, Heritage Christmas. That's another opportunity, folks. Please be part of that. What an exciting way to enjoy, to begin the Christmas season by uh, telling people about how Jesus Christ was born, ultimately born to die. So great to have you here. Let's look at the word this morning. Um, actually, I got a quote I want to share with you first. Um, the church has grown accustomed to hearing people question the message of the gospel because the message is foolishness to the lost. And in there, that word lost has to do with those people are living life without Jesus. They're lost without him. Uh, so it's foolishness to those who are lost. But today, the situation is embarrassingly reversed for now the messenger is suspect. Warren Wiersbe wrote that in a book called The Integrity Crisis that was written in 1988, 20 years ago. And he's talking about now that the messenger is suspect. Folks, I don't know if you've seen it or if you follow that stuff at all. I, I read bits and pieces. I just can't. It's just painful to read, but over the course of this last year or two, we have had some big, and I mean well-known, upfront, public pastors, leaders of big, fundamental evangelical churches across America that have fallen. It's been a mess all over the country. It's been a mess, and uh, that's what Wiersbe is talking about. 20 years before what's just happened. Here's another one for you. Dr. Henry Cloud, who is a believer, writes in business, but always has a message. Here it is. Uh, who a person is will ultimately determine if their brains, talents, competencies, energy, effort, deal-making abilities, and opportunities will succeed. Who a person is is. Think about that. You can be the smartest, the brightest, you can be the most competent, you can be the most talented, you can have the most energy, you can be the greatest negotiator going, but who you are is what ultimately determines whether or not you succeed. You say, Glenn, where are you going with all this? What in the world are you talking about? I'm talking about integrity. I'm talking about integrity. Because Henry Cloud's book is, that I took that quote from is called Integrity. We're talking about that issue of integrity, about who you and I really are when nobody else is around. When nobody else is watching, when nobody else is listening, who you and I really are. That has to do with our integrity. So that's what we're dealing with, the importance of integrity. Listen, we said this last week, the week before, the local church is made up of individual followers of Jesus living in relationship together in community with one another as family. That's what the church is. And as a group of individuals living like that in relationship together with one another as family, this requires 
leadership. Has to, right? Absolutely necessary. And it's the leadership that God designed and describes in 1 Timothy 3. So please open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we're going to look at the first seven verses. 1 Timothy chapter 3, the first seven verses. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, would like one, if you don't have your phone or tablet with you, underneath the chair in front of you, there should be a Bible. And in that Bible, page 830, page 830, 1 Timothy chapter 3. The Bible's clear. If we are going to do God's church, God's way, and that's been our theme for 1 Timothy. If we're going to do God's church, God's way, uh, we must be about God's mission of making disciples. And that's more people, more like Jesus. You've heard us talk about that. That's the mission. And if that's going to happen, we must follow God's plan for the leadership of his church. God has a plan, and it's found right here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. God's leaders must demonstrate God's character. I think we had that up there just a bit ago. God's leaders must demonstrate God's character. Now, that's how I would put it from 1 Timothy chapter 3, the first seven verses. But simply put, let let me bring it even more right down in line with our mission. God's leaders must be like Jesus. That's about as simple as I could make it. Now, when we're talking leaders, as we mentioned the last couple of weeks, we're talking elders, overseers, pastor shepherds. We looked at those words and how they're used in Scripture and how that they're used interchangeably, how that they're described. Acts chapter 20. 1 Peter chapter 5, we looked at that. Hebrews 13 refers to God's leadership in the church. But here it is, elder, overseer, pastor, shepherd. You're going to see those terms throughout the New Testament, and they're all interchangeable, referring to God's leaders of the church. For heritage, that's Paul and I. We are your pastors, your elders, your overseers. We are your shepherds. That's what the Bible says. And so we're going to look at that. Here's what the Bible says about the leadership of his church. Follow with me as I read. First Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect." If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Here it is. 
That's God's design and description of the leadership that he has placed over the churches, the local churches. So let me start right there in verse 2 with above reproach. Now the overseer is to be above reproach. People, that this is the heart of all that Paul has to say to Timothy about what it means to be an overseer, about what it means to be an elder or a pastor. And, and it's this business of being above reproach. This is referring to the integrity of the overseer. It's the main point of these verses. Really, if we could boil it all down to this is the one character quality that must be true. And everything that follows kind of supports and unpacks what it means to be above reproach. All of the other characteristics that we're going to briefly take a look at this morning are in support of describing, explaining, defining, if you will, what it means to be above reproach. A man of integrity. The idea of being complete, the state of being complete or undivided, not going different directions. Wholeness implies trustworthiness and incorruptibility. One writer said it this way, irreproachable in the sense of not open to attack or criticism in terms of his Christian life in general. So there's just the Christian life in general, living in such a way that he's not open to criticism or attack. And then specifically in terms of the characteristics that follow. And so we're going to look at those. But it means to have no observable flaw in character or conduct. Not deserving or worthy of rebuke or criticism. Literally, the word means not to be laid hold of. In other words, there ought to be nothing in Paul's life or my life or any pastor, any overseer's life that you can grab hold of and say, ah, I got him. Ha <laughs> ha, I found something. And I don't mean like that's what you're trying to do. But, but that can't be. That's what the word means, irreproachable, above reproach, so that there's nothing that anybody could grab on. That's the way it is to be. Not, there's no possibility whatsoever of discrediting your pastor, your overseer, or ruining, and this is more important, ruining the reputation of the church or the name of Christ. With these big name pastors from big churches, as they've fallen, I mean, it's been a mess. And, and, and the testimony of that church, of the church, but more so the mudslinging at the name of Christ. That's why the leaders of the church must be above reproach. It is critical, so critical, because it ultimately reflects on the church and the name of Christ. That's it, above reproach. This is where it all begins. So I'm just going to go right down through, uh, spend a little bit more time uh, on some than others, but faithful to his wife. This is all about commitment and faithfulness. It's about purity. 
A lot of people try to talk about this as what about divorce and divorce and remarriage, should the pastor be that or, or, or all these other things. And, and we can draw some implications, some inferences from the text. But the key fact here, the characteristic that Paul is talking about as it relates to the, to the overseer uh, in his character is faithfulness, commitment to his wife. Now let me say, I believe that as you study through all of what that means, it would rule out a divorced man and therefore certainly a divorced and remarried man from the pastorate. And you say, well, but Paul allows for divorce. Absolutely he does in very specific instances. Make sure you understand what Scripture says. That's for another day. But the issue at hand refers to being above reproach. That's why I don't believe, as I stated, that this would allow for a pastor to be divorced or divorced and remarried because above reproach, not open to blame. God has set high standards for the position of overseer for the leadership of the local church. Now, I'll keep studying, and I'm open to learning. But that's where I've landed for the time being. And I'm not saying I have the corner on the truth. Uh, Others would take different position, and that's fine. But that's where I land. And, And I'll repeat a quote that we've been referencing as it relates even to marriage. And this is why, again, I would think that must be true about me, about Paul as husbands, as married men. Most marriage problems are not really marriage problems. They are God problems. They can be traced back to one or both people having a poor relationship with God or a faulty understanding of who he is. So when you put that into the context of divorce and remarriage, above reproach, man, it's a God problem, not just a marriage problem. And I think that's critical. God's leaders must be like Jesus. Let me add too, when it says husband of one wife, it seems to me to be clear language that the overseer is intended by God to be a man. I shared with you as we traveled about this summer and 12 or 13 different churches, I don't remember exactly what it was, churches that I assumed thought were pretty solid, evangelical, fundamental, three of them had woman pastors. And, and I don't think Scripture allows for that. And I think it's pretty clear in the text. And uh, even the qualifying words that are used in verses 3 through 7 are masculine adjectives. Um, so there you have it. Next, temperate. Must be temperate. Clear-headed. Um, not given to extremes in behavior. Well-balanced. That would be the indication. The self-controlled. I don't think we need to to describe that, but simply put, sensible, an individual who knows how to use good judgment, an individual who is under control, who is disciplined, who we might say is master of the moment. Boy, there are are times when, when we have opportunities as your shepherds, as your elders, as your overseers to get out of control. And we have to encourage one another. Paul said, well, Luke, in Acts chapter 20, when he was 
When, it, when Paul was, he was telling us about Paul talking to the Ephesian elders, he said, you need to take heed unto yourselves. That's what he said first. Pay attention to your own character and your own behavior. You must be under control. You must master the moment. Or you know what happens? We cheapen the position of overseer or elder or pastor. You wouldn't think much of me as your pastor if every time you turn around, I'm losing control and throwing stuff and kicking stuff and all the rest of that. You'd go, man, that guy, what in the world? That's not self-controlled. Respectable. This has to do with commendable. Good reputation in the public eye. Hospitable. This has to do with treating guests and strangers. There's a big aspect of that about the way we minister to unknown people, to strangers, and generosity and kindness to them. Now, this was critical back in the first century because travel wasn't what it was today. And, and traveling throughout the Middle East under very difficult circumstances, some people just opened up their homes for travelers that were just coming by to be generous with food and shelter and all that was involved. And that's what it may, means to be hospitable. It's more than simply saying, hey, yeah, we're having family and friends over for dinner. Well, who wouldn't do that? Right? It has to do with loving the stranger. That's hospitality at its best. Able to teach. This is probably the only competency that's in this list. The others all have to do with character, but, but when I study through this, I think it really does have more to, to do with the individual. Yes, this has to do, able to teach, has to do with ability, not knowledge. Able to teach, now, you have to have knowledge if you're going to teach, but it has to do primarily with the ability to communicate that knowledge. But ultimately, that comes back to the giftedness that God gives to the elder. He says, able to teach. Now, we're going to find out that's different than that of a deacon. And when we get to that, uh, next week we'll talk about deacons. But here's that primary leadership of the church is about teaching. That's the ability that that really has to do with who that elder, that overseer is, a teacher. And teachers are teachable. That's why I want to say to you, I, boy, there are some things that I'll be clear, I'll be black and white on if that's what I really believe Scripture is. But boy, I want to be careful. I want to really be careful about saying I have the corner on the truth. I know exactly I'm right. And if anybody doesn't agree, you're wrong. That's not teachable. And I don't want to be that way. And I want to be able to understand. Not given the drunkenness. Not a, not a brawler or a drunkard. Obviously, that's what it means. Let me just say, uh, I've been here over eight years. And I don't think I've ever talked about alcohol. We were visiting some friends of ours who were pastor and wife for a long time, and he said to me, he said, Glenn, what in the world is this with all of God's people just drinking as if it's like no big deal? Now just relax, people. <laughs> but I'm going to say something after eight years and how many ever months. 
First of all, don't say just because Paul told Timothy to use a little wine for the stomach's sake that that means wine is okay. I'm not saying to you that it's not okay. I'm just saying don't use that because we're talking apples and oranges, folks. In fact, understand that the wine that the Bible talks about isn't even close in alcoholic content to the wine that we have today or, or the alcohol that we have today. Not even close. And if you do some research, if you understand and study through Scripture, you would figure that out. Listen, the Jewish people diluted their wine with water to make sure that it wasn't that strong. Actually, wine was used as a water purification because the water was very difficult to drink, could make you sick. That's probably as much the reason why Paul told Timothy to use a little wine for your stomach's sake because it was upset by the lousy water. I remember when I went to the Philippines. Uh, Some of you men that are going to the men's retreat next week. By the way, guys, today's the last day, right, Phil? See, Phil. Yeah, right. Okay, is it really too late? All right, see, Phil. But Dennis Wilhite is going to be talking. Dennis grew up in the Philippines, and he and I and a couple other guys went to the Philippines about 15 years ago for about two weeks. And uh, I tell you what, we had two Filipinos that traveled with us everywhere, and they would absolutely not let us touch the water. They would get bottled water for us every time we turned around. And, and they were used to it. Their systems were good. Yet Jeff and Jenny are shaking their heads. Oh, we know what you're talking about. But, uh, but, but that's exactly what it was. And in the Middle East, in, in, in the first century, that's, that's a lot of what the, the, the alcoholic, that's what it was for, to, to make the, the, the water drinkable. But there's a vast difference between the use of wine in the Bible days and supporting the alcohol ministry, uh, industry today. It's just, it's just a different ballgame, folks. And we could quote, you can go online and look them up, all the statistics about alcoholism and the problem and the money that, that we have, the deaths and the accidents and everything else. Let me just simply say, if you as a follower of Jesus believe alcohol is okay for you, please make sure that you study what God's Word has to say about that. Understand. That, that the alcohol, again, that refer, is referred to in Scripture is not even close to the same as it is today. Don't just claim your Christian liberty. We have liberty in Christ. Okay, well, study Scripture. And, and don't just say, the Bible only says don't get drunk. Oh, again, please study Scripture so you know all that the Bible does say that's that's what I'm saying to you folks I I get so tired and, and I've seen it with college students and young adults Christian college students who, who just are like oh yeah we're free to do this man we have liberty and all that have you studied what scriptures well no we don't need we know it says don't get drunk I'm not getting drunk study scripture all right as your pastor pastor Paul As your pastor, we would encourage you to know what God says. Doesn't matter what we think. Know what God teaches. Don't be violent, he says. Not violent. 
That means not a giver of blows. It's referring to physical or verbal violence. Um, not an angry individual. Again, if, if we run around kicking stuff and throwing stuff and screaming and yelling and an, not being a bully, that's what's involved there. Being gentle instead, patient, flexible, not rigid, yielding, kind. That's what your pastors are to be. Not quarrelsome, inclined to peace. Thinking the best first, not the worst first. Not a lover of money. And I just simply want to say that's a pretty obvious one because money can ruin your life. The love of money can ruin your life, not money. I remember my first year as a freshman at Temple University down in Philadelphia. Went in to have a conversation with my professor. I didn't even know how we got on it, but I had an opportunity to share Christ. And, and somehow we got into that. And I simply said, the Bible says that the love of money or that money is the root of all evil. And he said, well, I'd like to correct you on that. The Bible says the love of money. is." The, I said, that's right. What an idiot. <laughs> it's the love of money. Because it can control you. It can put you in debt. It can make you useless for God. And notice it says the love of money, not the possession of money. All right. Um, then verse 4, he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. The parallel between family and church is the ability of the overseer to guide and care for those who are his responsibility. Each of us who have kids, and if you, you're not there yet, you were somebody's kid, right? Or you wouldn't be here. Hello, yes? That's 10th grade biology, right? You all understand that. But, but as we talk about that, uh, being parents, we, we, we have a responsibility. When we bring a child into this world, we have a responsibility to care for that individual. Why? Because we brought them here. And the parallel that Paul is talking about between a pastor and a parent is simply that we have a responsibility to care for those who are put in, under our care. Folks, Paul and I have a responsibility for you before God. Because one day, as we saw last week, Hebrews 13 tells us, we will have to give an account of how we have been serious about that responsibility of caring for you. That's what Paul is talking about here. Family members submit to the leadership of a dad and mom because that's what they do. Out of respect for the head of the home is the dad. And an overseer cannot be one thing at home and another thing at church. An overseer cannot just grab hold of that statement because I said so. That's not responsible caring. That's what scripture says. And then he goes on, verse 6. He must not be a recent convert. You might say, well, how new or how recent is that? It doesn't have anything to do with age, really. I mean, yes, we would want there to be, certainly, and we're not going to look at an 18-year-old necessarily as a pastor, although there are probably some places around the world out in the middle of nowhere, and, and there very well could be a godly young man. But the Bible doesn't talk about that. It talks about 
uh, not a recent convert, evidence that that individual can function as an elder, teaching, leading, defending the faith, not a novice, not a rookie. And here's another thing that's very important as part of the maturing process for an overseer, for a pastor, and that is knowing, having gone through some of the hardness, the hard lessons of life, so that there's an understanding of what God does and how he operates and how he functions the hard times and temptations can make us strong. In fact, that's what Paul says. Many times a new believer is more than likely to look at a position as an opportunity for personal advancement, and, and that's not whatever God ever intended to be for the pastor. Verse 7, he must also have good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. That, that's critical. An elder, a pastor, must be known and respected by unbelievers. Paul and I have a responsibility to, to know the people of our community, not just of our church. And then we're to be known in the community with a reputation. We're to be viewed with respect because of who we are, not just a good guy. Some, some used to, and that's not like it used to, was years ago, but some will just look at, hey, you're a pastor. Okay, well, I'll expect you to be good. You know, it's like, are you good for nothing or, you know, whatever? Do we pay you to be good? Well, uh, we, we need to recognize that uh, it is a responsibility that your pastors have to be known in the community, to be respected in the community, to know people within the community. God's leaders must be like Jesus. Heritage Baptist Church exists to make more people more like Jesus. You've heard us say that. That's Matthew 28. People become more like Jesus by coming to know Jesus, by getting saved. That's where it starts, salvation. People become more like Jesus by publicly identifying with and committing to Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's getting baptized. That's, the, that's what Kayla just did. And people are to be willing to know and do all that Jesus commanded. That's being taught to obey. That's getting obedient. Now that's the Great Commission. And we, as your pastors, have a responsibility to continue to keep that before you because that's what Scripture says. But folks, that means that you then are responsible to follow through and fulfill the Great Commission as well. Sometimes we talk about pastors or elders or overseers just being the hired professionals. Well, that's not the way it's described in Scripture. We're in this together. The Great Commission is all of ours to own and to participate in. Came across an article this week, the latest research that's out, the latest Pew survey. If you study that, look that up, just Google Pew survey, you'll find out that it is uh, a nationwide research outfit. And they came up again, the latest Christianity in America is declining still. 
Now, that doesn't come, I'm sure, as a shock. It shouldn't to many of you. I don't need to go into all of those numbers, but I want you to know that's what, that's what it says. It's getting worse, and, and people, it's going to continue to get worse. I am not trying to be a prophet of doom. I'm just telling you what Scripture says. I am not looking forward to 2020 as it relates to all of what's going to go on with the elections in our country. But folks, we have an opportunity to fulfill the Great Commission. Please understand, believers, it's not about politics. It's about Jesus. That's our responsibility. So what are we going to do? If Christianity in America is still declining, what are we going to do? Well, we saw last week from Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7, the writer of the book of Hebrews said, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, in that context, I believe the writer of the book of Hebrews was referring to former leaders who had gone on to heaven, had died. But the obvious implication is that now you can look back to, to, to them and, and remember their outcome as a believer, the, how they lived their life and imitate their faith. Well, that must mean that our faith, Paul and I, is worth imitating. Paul said, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. That, that's important. But here it is. Our lives are to be, Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy, be examples to the believers. And I think it is important that our lives are an example that they are worth imitating. So let me give you three questions to think about. Number one, if everyone in our church was just like me, what kind of church would we have? If everyone in our church was just like Paul, what kind of church would we have? Now let me ask it this way. If everyone in our church was just like you, what kind of church would we have? How about this? If every believer shared the gospel as often as I do, as Paul does, how many would we baptize next year? Now let me say it this way. If every believer shared the gospel as often as you do, how many would we baptize next year? If everyone at Heritage gave the percentage of their income that I do, that Paul does, how much would we have to reach people in northeastern Pennsylvania who don't know Jesus? And you know what's next. If everyone at Heritage gave the percentage of their income that you do, how much would we have to reach people? How much money would we have to reach people in northeastern Pennsylvania who don't know Jesus? You see, 
we have the responsibility to see that this place, that you folks, that Paul and I, that you, that we together fulfill the Great Commission, that we go and make disciples, that we baptize them and teach them to obey. That's our responsibility, and that's what these questions have to do everything with. That's our responsibility. We are taking steps to turn up discipleship like, like we've never seen it here at Heritage before. We are going to be about making disciples. That's what yesterday was about. That's what the Heritage Christmas is about. Come to the meeting when we're done here, please. Because I want you to ultimately know that you have to answer this question. It's not on the screen. Is there anything you as a believer want more than to hear, well done, when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ? It's not judging for sin. It's judging for reward. Is there anything that you want more than to hear, well done, come from God's lips about you, about me. Wow. Wouldn't that be great? Won't that be great? I trust it will. That's my desire. That's Paul's desire. I trust that we're living our lives so that we will hear, well done, when we stand before our God and Savior. Father, thank you for your truth, for your word. Lord, you've given Paul and I a tremendous responsibility sometimes that just scares me to death. Father, help us to be men who lead for the glory of God and for the good of this church, knowing that we one day will give an account. Oh, God, I want to hear. I know Paul wants to hear. Well done. So, God, use us as we lead these great people that we call heritage. Help us together, Father, to be all about making disciples. to be taking the gospel, to be going out with the gospel. And as we see people respond and believe, help us to be so thrilled to see them obey and stand publicly and get baptized. And then as they're taught to obey and grow and become more like Jesus and this keep the cycle going. Oh God, don't let us be content to have a few here and there who come to Christ who are growing. Father, I pray that this church will be all about making disciples of all nations. For it's in Christ's name I pray, amen.